It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by. The Dispatch, check out our wares, may become a member of the uh, Dispatch community. Um, I've been uh, kicking the tires on this new community um, capability that we're going to be unrolling in the next, I don't, I don't know how many weeks or months we're going to do a beta test with some select G-File readers and maybe Remnant listeners. Uh, more about that later, but it's really cool and it lets us do all sorts of really nifty, neat stuff and I'm very excited about it. And if you've been tempted to get on the bandwagon and become a member, um, it'd be great if you could do it before we start rolling that stuff out because it's really neat. Anyway, um, so I said on the first podcast of the week that this week we had all new guests and what I was doing there was um, I was lying uh, because I got it wrong. Uh, the, the second new guest I had in mind is actually next week. I'm very excited about that guest. And, um, and then, so it dawned on me that I needed a guest for, for this week. And, uh, one of my oldest friends and, uh, a fan favorite of the remnant, um, agreed to come on. Uh, one problem is that after I, only after I asked him, did I learn that he had just been on the commentary podcast and, uh, those, you know, they have a nice niche podcast over there, but we try not to like sort of double up for fear of having overlapping listenership. So we'll be talking about different things. I should also note that John Padoritz, uh, editor of commentary, host of the commentary podcast, coincidentally enough, a mutual friend of both me and our guest today, Tevi Troy, um, kind of ruined my evening yesterday because at the start of the glop culture podcast, this thing I do with Rob Long and, uh, and, and pod for, uh, ricochet, he went on various outraged dyspeptic tirades, um, mostly focused on a single media figure of the right who I shall not name, but he did this for about, I don't know, a half hour. And then after the first ad break, John said, Hey guys, you think we should just start over and cut all of that? And we said, yeah, probably. Cause that was, that was a dark, that was a dark path. Um, and so uh, I didn't finish recording Glop yesterday until the wee hours, and I'm, I'm very cross about it. Um, Jonah, is that going to be the episode 11 of the Well, that Glop was world? the thing, is that I, we talked about this. It was like, we have to keep this shrouded in mystery because people love a mystery. Um, and I'm tempted to give out some sort of you know coveted no prize for the person who guesses who the right-wing media figure that uh, he 
that particularly got under his skin. But he 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 was dyspeptic on a whole across the waterfront. But he kept returning. It was almost like the the chorus in a song calling a certain person uh, a lots of bad words and a uh, a person who sells their body for financial reward um, and other things. And, and it must've said it like 10 times. And so anyway, uh, I just thought I'd get that out there because I'm a little traumatized by it, but I know you will not be doing that. So Tevi Troy, welcome back to the remit. Tevi for listeners who, for first time listeners who don't know, my first job in Washington was uh, uh, as an intern to be trained to replace Tevi as a research assistant to the American Enterprise Institute in the early Pleistocene era. And um, since then, Tevi's had many positions in and out of government. Uh, he's written many books. He's an historian. He's got a PhD from the University of Texas, and he's a prolific writer. And um, and he's a good friend, and he's got a couple pieces out, which we'll talk about a little bit. Tevi, welcome back. I apologize for that long-winded introduction. No, it's great to be back. This, I believe, is now my official gold jacket. There was some controversy among your minions about whether I'd actually hit the level last time. There was. So, there was. Uh, that is a good thing that we can now officially say that. And the second thing, this is the first time that I'm on the remnant since we now officially know that you had an Ayn Rand poster up in your apartment in Washington. I was in that apartment many times. I never saw the Atlas Shrugged poster, but uh, it's interesting to know that the TV gods have determined you do have that kind of thing. You son of a bitch. Um, yeah, so uh, I was actually going to ask you, you, you've watched this, this show? I have not. I just uh, uh, gleefully watched it on Twitter, knowing that you would never have put up a poster like that. <laughs> oh, man. So it's funny. Um, uh, I, I, I can say it now, just like, what's going to happen? I don't live there anymore. And if they want to do the tour bus guide trip, I used to live at 1843 Mintwood Place. That is the apartment that had that meeting. And, uh, it, which is an Adams Morgan, it's a great apartment and looks nothing like those pictures. As far as I could tell, I got a text yesterday from the fair Jessica, uh, my wife saying just out of the blue, my God, this is ridiculous. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, first of all, the forget the Ayn Rand poster. Your apartment was never that clean. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest that is true. Uh, so, um, but I imagine you get frequent texts from the fair Jessica saying, my God, this is ridiculous. I do. I do. But it's usually about something I've written or something I've you know, done. It's not something that Hollywood has done about me. Um, but uh, yeah, I was going to bring it up because you were actually you'd been in that apartment quite a few times. I mean, I, I can't count because it was, you know, 25 years ago or whatever. But um, anyway, uh, I did not have an Ayn Rand poster. Uh, this was back in the days when you described yourself as a neo-Straussian libertarian, um, which I don't think you do anymore. Um, it's not a bad description, though. <laughs> it covers the basis. <laughs> it, it, it covers the basis, Teddy. It definitely covers the basis. Um, okay, since we're, t we're, we're, in, we, we're, we're in the hungry hippo way back time machine mode here, um, I gotta say, I thought your obit for Colin Powell was probably the best one I read. Um, um, but I had a question, um, because it seems everybody, you know, everyone's covering the highlights and lowlights of his career and all that kind of stuff. And given the detail of yours, I was waiting for it to appear and yours didn't mention this either. So maybe my memory is wrong, but I could swear that Colin Powell 
was the guy who forced Clinton to back down on the gays in the military stuff, which then yielded the don't ask, don't tell policy as the compromise. Do I have that wrong? No, actually, I think I think you do have that right. I mean, he was he he was not thrilled to that, and then they did come up with the compromise, uh, and and it was part of the kind of early Clinton mess where he wasn't checking his bases before going forward with stuff, and then the administration seemed to be going off the rails in in those early days. And the stature of Colin Powell, I think, was uh, something that helped determine his direction. But uh, but yeah, I, I didn't mention it. Uh, and there's so much to mention in, in a long illustrious career. When no, into, I know. I I, I just I, really, I I don't bring this up to criticize you again. I, I thought it was a really good piece. Um, but like, you would think parts of the left would have how long memory on that, right? Because the way I remember it is like he, he very ostentatiously everybody put on their uniform and marched the Oval Office and had this confrontation about gays in the military and Powell's the guy who forced Clinton to back down. You would think, given the wokeness of the current age, that that would be remembered more negatively, but it, it seems to have sort of just been memory hold, and I just thought it was sort of interesting. Yeah, I think the media kind of decides who they think is on the good side, and then they focus on those things. It's a little bit like the, um, uh, is it the Katie Couric incident with uh, RBG, where yeah, RBG yeah. was against uh, the kneeling for the national anthem, and she kind of covered it up because RBG is a good person in her view, and uh, she would never want it, something like that out. So I think, I think there was kind of uh, media eye-shading things towards the way they want it to be. Um, so just staying on, on Powell for a second, my understanding from our mutual former employer, Ben Wattenberg, was that while Powell's command of Yiddish got a lot of, uh, good press, that his Yiddish actually wasn't that good. He only knew like a handful of phrases. Do we know, do you know, can you confirm this? Cause this is, this is absolutely the kind of information that we look to Tevi Joy to confirm. Yeah, I never had a conversation with Powell in Yiddish, and I did have some conversations with him. Uh, anyway, it strikes me as likely that he knew a couple of phrases, like the one he deployed uh, again uh, with Yitzhak Shamir in the, in the story I tell in, in my obit, um, and he used them <laughs> cleverly. He was he was a funny guy. In fact, Ken Edelman, who I think you know, uh, was yeah. a good friend of of Powell, and he said in oral history and in a comment that didn't quite make the final cut. Uh, Powell was always joking. He was always making funny comments. And and you look at him and you think serious guy, but really there was a very humorous side to him. And I think he deployed it well. And I think the Yiddish, the Yiddish thing was part of that. Yeah. I mean, um, did he, did he work for a garment company? I mean, what, what, what there, he learned it because he worked for some Jewish employer that was yelling. Yeah, he worked for a, Jew, a Jewish store. I don't remember exactly yeah. the store did. Cause, um, you know, my dad worked in places like that and, um, that was his um, Yiddish. My, my dad's Yiddish was not great, but uh, he had these fantastic stories about how, like, at the end of the day of working in a sweater warehouse in the summertime, sweat schwitzing like you wouldn't believe, and his reward for a good day's work was his boss would pour him a Dixie cup of ice cold water from the water thing, and he's like, "Here you go, Goldberg." <laughs> um, all right. Uh, um. Um. But I mean, I, I, to be more serious about Powell for just two seconds, I mean, I, he's kind of a hard guy to to write and talk about in part because at the end of the day, he really was kind of conventional um, in the way he 
thought about policy and strategy and whatnot. And I think that one of the sort of interesting things about him is that it turned out that sort of being a conventional thinker is kind of what you wanted in that role. And it, it served him well. It's just that he didn't, when it came to the Iraq war, he didn't act on his conventionalness very well. And it kind of got him in trouble, but, um, he wasn't some grand military strategist as far as, you know, I haven't read anything that said that he was a good soldier, good general, very political. Um, but a charming and very good, you know, bureaucratic infighter and, and PR guy. Is that unfair? I think that's all accurate. And, and I also wonder, and this is something I've wondered about over the years, is was he too big for the role of Secretary of State when he took it? And what I mean by it is this. Sometimes you have people who are so elevated, so famous, that they really are not eager to work as part of a larger team. They have great ties in the media, as Powell clearly did. And they're sort of running their own show. And when you work for the president, even if you're the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, you still work for the president. And I think that's a challenge that sometimes people have to overcome. And that, that may have been an issue. I mean, it's pretty clear that he was talking to his friend Bob Woodward on a quite, quite regular basis during the Bush administration. Um, Woodward pushed him for uh, Secretary of Defense in the Obama administration. Uh, the, all the Woodward books on the Bush years seem to have the Powell take on it. So uh, m- maybe you want someone who's not quite that elevated when you have the... Um, uh, when you have that situation going on. Yeah. Although I mean, it, it seems like it could have been worse if, if Powell, I mean, we know Powell thought about running for president, but he didn't, um, he didn't seem to act as a cabinet secretary who had his eye on, you know, the presidency as the next step, which sometimes is sort of the classic thing that gets cabinet secretaries into trouble and causes problems for administrations. Um, and I'm sure we've talked about this a thousand times. Um, I always like to do the contrafactual. What if he had ran for president in 96? I mean, it would have been, it, it, it's, it's one of the easiest cases to make about how the, the, the great man theory for one of, you know, the idea that individuals you know, cr- shape a lot of history, the, for good or for ill, if he had run for president, you could see a scenario where the last 20 years work out very, very very differently um but it um i mean do you think he could have beaten clinton if he had if he had run in 96 yeah it's a good question i actually think that he could have beaten clinton but i'm not sure he could have gotten the republican nomination Mm -hmm. uh, which is a very different calculation so uh he was a little bit to the left or uh he he would have been a moderate or a squish in, in the republican party for sure and um Bob Dole had a had did not run a great race for president against Clinton, uh, but he was seen as the guy whose time it was on the Republican side and had a big advantage there. Yeah, um, I'm so nostalgic for that age, though. That was the time when you know Bill Bennett was out pushing the idea because he thought it was so vitally important to have a man of good character as the president of the United States, and it doesn't seem to be his position any longer. But um, so, uh, Bennett was supposedly asked to be vice presidential pick under Clinton. I'm sorry, un, uh, under Dole and said no. I remember that story. Yeah. Um, which would have also been interesting. Um, he would have done a better job in the debate against Gore because Kemp didn't actually prepare for that debate. <laughs> no, Kemp did a very bad job. Um, 
I also, I have to say, look, I, I always, Kemp's heart was always in the right place. I was never that impressed with him as a politician. Um, I always thought that there was something kind of like he, he'd spent too long talking to audiences that already agreed with him. Um, or there's something, I mean, some Amway salesman kind of thing about Kemp. I mean, I, again, I liked him. He was on the side of the angels. He, he represents much more my version of what conservatism is, be, is supposed to be about than a lot of others. But um, I just never saw him as like pulling new people. He liked to talk about pulling new people into the GOP, but I, I never saw much evidence that he did. Maybe that's being unfair. There, there's a great quote about Kemp that is attributed to Irving Kristol, which is, I like when politicians read books, but it's not good if they read the same book over and over and over again. <laughs> we're talking about the, uh, the Jude Winiski book that Kemp was such a fan of. Um, all right. So in the latest issue of commentary, you've got um, a piece on um, is uh, wokeness MD, I think is the title. And it's about the penetration of sort of woke ideology into the medical profession. Why don't you sort of lay it out for a second? Uh, but not so much that we lose all the commentary podcast listeners who've already heard you explain it. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say it quickly, which is, uh, first of all, salute to commentary for doing a whole issue on wokeness. And I don't know if you've seen the cover, but it's kind of stark and arresting. It's just woke the threat. And it's all black with just those words uh, on the front, plus the, the people who've contributed to the issue. But the centerfold and, is great, but that's yeah. a different <laughs> <laughs> and, and what I try and argue is that, um, uh, what, what I try and argue in the piece is that there's really three things going on. Number one is there's a question of whether you're going to have equal treatment in medicine uh, in, in a woke environment. Do you treat people better because they're intersectional or POC uh, in, in this woke world? Uh, number two is can you have free and open lines of inquiry or does politics invade all of the discussion so then you can't really engage in the scientific method. And, uh, you know, our friend Jonathan Rausch has that book, The Constitution of Knowledge, where he explicitly talks about how the scientific knowledge, the scientific method comes about from testing theories, not going according to the preconceived wisdom and making sure that you can ask tough questions. And that may not be something that's doable in the woke world. As we have seen, you, you, know, you can't really challenge the, this prevailing wisdom without the fear or risk of being canceled. And then the third thing is, are we training the best doctors to do the best possible job uh, in, in a woke world? Uh, are you making excuses for people or you're not running them through the famous boot camp that uh, doctors have to go through in order to uh, get to where they have to go? Um, so, I mean, uh, the, the most anecdotal part of of your piece and I, again i don't mean that as a criticism but it's it's this idea of like you have a quote from a barry weiss thing about a doctor overhearing talk of refusing to treat white people in preference to you know people of color or or, or whatever um isn't that just on its face i mean regardless i mean I, I, you make a very good and clear point that it's against medical ethics to be sure but um I mean, obviously refusing, um, giving preference based on race in violation of like triage protocols or, you know, Hippocratic oath protocols, uh, is grotesquely, you know, unethical and immoral and all that kind of stuff. I would also think you could just get sued for that. Right. I mean, like if, if you could prove or demonstrate that there was a, 
preference given to a less pressing case because of of skin color um that would open you up a hospital up to a massive lawsuit i mean that's just sort of what occurred to me when i was reading the piece yeah so i intentionally wrote this piece as a series of questions and as we talked about earlier when i when we talked about my piece for national affairs on kind of wokeness and the, the comparisons to the uh, political correctness wars of the 90s. I'm not one of these people who wants to be a hand-wringing conservative who just says, oh my gosh, the world is terrible. I want to actually look at the question, determine if this is a problem, and also suggest potential solutions if, if it is indeed a problem. And so what I find is that there are certain encroachments, if you will, meaning that there are worrisome signs, like those two doctors who said we should treat people of color better, or like the person who got pushed out of his medical journal for writing a peer-reviewed piece that questioned the received wisdom. Uh, or these people who are saying you can't really uh, chide medical interns or residents for showing up late. Uh, and I think those are worrisome tendencies, and they challenge the received wisdom, which is, I think, in this case, a good received wisdom. I mean, not all received wisdom is bad. Uh, it challenges this received wisdom about how you should train doctors and how you should treat people and how you should engage in scientific inquiry. And so what I'm trying to do is put out a warning sign. If there are these anecdotes of these stories of people acting in ways that we think are abhorrent to the current practice of, of medicine, then we should call it out and say, this is a problem. And if those practices that are problematic, and at this point still anecdotal, remember our friend Ben Wattenberg, our mentor Ben Wattenberg used to say the plural of anecdote is data, right? But right now we have a relatively small Which I disagree with pretty profoundly. Right? <laughs> but. <laughs> That's true. But, uh, but if we have this issue where these things are popping up and the people aren't being sufficiently chided for engaging in this kind of behavior, for suggesting not treating people equally. And I, what I say is that one of the women at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston who suggested this ridiculous idea of treating people of color better than people who are not of color in medical treatment, that person was not rebuked sufficiently. In fact, she was promoted and get this big senior job with the New York City Public Health Department. So that's what I'm trying to do. Is I'm trying to say, if we go in this direction, it would be extremely problematic to our conception of Western medicine and what is effective way of, of treating people and developing new innovative theories, uh, therapies. Yeah. So um, I want to I want to sort of broaden out on this point because it ties into your national affairs thing. Um, have you followed this, the stuff about the, um, uh, the geo astrophysicist guy who was denied an opportunity to give a speech at MIT because he had said in another context, he was against some affirmative action diversity stuff. Have you followed this story at all? Yeah. I, I read the article in the wall street journal on it this morning. And then he ended up speaking at Princeton at Robbie George's program. Right. So there's a quote in the Times story, which is actually really, really quite good. Um, by Michael Powell, which they quote a, uh, a female academic who says, quote, this idea of intellectual debate and rigor as the pinnacle of intellectualism comes from a world in which white men dominated. And I was texting with some friends about this last night. I mean, a lot of things came from a world in which white men dominated. Antibiotics came from a world in dentistry. White men, dentistry, um, you know, uh, the you know the concept of free speech. I mean, like again, this idea that somehow because white men were dominant, which I think we can all concede 
you know, was a story of a lot of Western history that therefore anything they came up with aqueducts, you know, <laughs> um, is therefore suspect or doesn't have authority is some back guano crazy stuff. And, um, and so this whole, I, you know, like w some of the things you recount in the piece about the, you know, that bad, but you know, bad scholarship that's woke can't be questioned and good scholarship that contradicts wokeness must be questioned or denied. Um, that's not just a problem for medicine, right? That's a problem for, that's essentially a problem for Western civilization at the end of the day, because, um, and, and I, I do think our friend Jonathan Rausch doesn't pay enough attention to those kinds of threats to, um, you know, what he calls the constitution of knowledge. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a broader assault and, you know, first of all, do you agree with that? But second of all, I have this thing where I increasingly in the, particularly in the context of the Dave Chappelle stuff, um, I don't really completely understand why so many people are so intimidated by this stuff that they don't push they don't call bs on it because i understand the hard cases are call hard to call bs on but some of the easy cases are really easy to and yet the vast swaths of the bureaucracy and our various institutions are, seem to be in, incredibly intimidated by people who in fact have very little power over them or am i wrong i mean it, it seems like the, the the rumors of the woke mob's actual power rather than perceived power are greatly exaggerated yeah, you know, it's, it's a good point, Jonah. And it sort of gets back to the, the Powell stuff you, you were talking about earlier in that certain people are called out for certain things. There's a selectivity to it. But if you think about it, for the most part, conservatives don't get canceled. Why do they not get canceled? Because they don't engage. They're, they don't care about those certain institutions. I, you know, right. I'm not worried about the New York Times saying I can't be employed. They're also not in not a lot of those institutions. Right, because I'm not trying to work there. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to work at MIT or any, any of those places. And I think it, it liberates conservatives in a way in, in this era. But people whose whole worldview is caught up in working for those institutions, I could see it being frightening to them seeing that they get closed off from those institutions for having what was a fairly conventional thought about, you know, two plus two equals four or, um, the, the benefits of showing up on time for work. I mean, you know, these things that, that, um, that's that, that Smithsonian, uh, thing on, on race a couple of years ago said that are, are, I guess, white male conceptions or, or something like that. So, uh, basic ideas should not be thrown out just because people are worried that white males dominated in an earlier era. And, and let me just add on this white male point, which is, it's not like my ancestors were, were dominant in, in that whole era that everybody is denouncing. I mean, my, uh, my ancestors were running away from pogroms in the shtetl as, as were many of mine. Um, right. um, yeah, but I mean, so like, I mean, so we had, we had a big, I can't remember if it's, I don't know if it's going to make the cut given how much we recorded yesterday for this epic, bizarre glop thing but we had a long talk about the netflix thing and um you know pod's position is is that the real point of this brouhaha you know where you know yesterday we're recording this on thursday yesterday dozens dozens and dozens of protesters walked out of netflix and uh, of of employees walked out of netflix to protest something 
And, um, uh, you know, I get the argument about advertisers, you know, you don't want to like piss off your advertisers and got to be careful. Although, you know, Fox makes a lot of money pissing off woke people and it still makes money from advertisers. So, I mean, advertisers are gettable. Maybe people don't want too many my pillow ads, but you get the general point. Netflix has no advertisers. It has just had this incredible year. This squid game thing has gotten, you know, 800 trillion views and they're gaining customers and they're, they are, have, um, they're just a, a perpetual cash machine and they've got co-opted in part of their portfolio, the Obamas, the idea that somehow this incredibly popular talent, Dave Chappelle is a, should be considered a problem for Netflix makes no sense. And so pod's theory is that this is not about Chappelle because Chappelle will be fine. This was the last show anyway. This is sending a signal, no more Chappelle's. Don't, at the beginning of your career, try to be like Chappelle because we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And I just don't get the incentive structure for the head of Netflix to first take a principled good position and then cave to these people when there's no economic pressure point that I can figure out that's not re easily replaced you know, if he's worried about share price, you know, if you lose some investors, there are plenty of other investors that would like to invest in something like Netflix that's generating just gobs of cash every single month. Um, and so this is what I mean about like I, I, the rumors of these people's power is just I, 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 I just don't see it. And yet people act as and I know power power is in perception, but, you know, isn't there an opportunity here to call some bluffs on this stuff? Yeah, first of all, I think John is right in general in saying that it is to scare off the future Chappelle's. Right? Nobody who wants to be in that world is going to go into comedy and take tough outre positions uh, given the, the, I guess, the, the, what comes down upon you or rain, what rains on you afterwards. But the other thing is that there, there are bluffs to be called, but I, I just think that people in these roles can't handle criticism, which is kind of shocking to me given that you know, you're a CEO. I mean, someone's always going to be criticizing you for something. I mean, I, I just think that folks in this world need to have tougher skin. I, I don't care if a couple of people denounce me on Twitter, and you know, you, you've had more people denounce you on Twitter, and you know, you, you develop a thick skin for this stuff. So, uh, I, I do think that there is a bit of um, weak needness in corporate America that they just can't handle this idea that they'll be criticized from the left on anything. Um. Yeah, I mean, but but again, that's. Like if I were a shareholder, well, never mind a major, like if I were on the board and my CEO caved to this nonsense during a BAFO year and made promises to, you know, put out more content that nobody wants to watch, um, as appeasement, um, I'd be kind of pissed. I mean, there's, 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 there's a, there's a breakdown in the normal functioning of a free market in all of this. Um, in the sense that there's a very tight, small minority of people demanding massive changes while refusing to make any changes among themselves or any compromises among themselves. And it's, it's like this Archimedean lever that is moving massive institutions with 
remarkably little exertion. And it's just, it's just very strange to me, but I mean, you're probably right. It's probably just, you know, a weird psychological tick that liberal people hate to be attacked from the left. Um, I've gotten kind of used as a conservative being attacked from the right and I'm okay with it, but it's, it's very strange to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, Barry Weiss's piece in that commentary symposium on, on, uh, wokeness, uh, she just argues for courage. She says, what you need is courage to stand up to this stuff. And, and if it really is a small percentage, which I, I believe it is, who are making this case, then it's the effect of courage is a way of, a way of what in your phrase, calling their bluff, just saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to change every way we think about the world just because a, a couple of people are upset and dozens of people are going to walk out at, at Netflix headquarters. I mean, you know, I, I heard that was the numerator. The first thing I wondered was what, what's the denominator? I mean, how many employees are there at Netflix total? I looked it up. Apparently it's, it's just under 10,000, right? So, so dozens out of 10,000, really, I, you know, I quake in my boots. Yeah. And, and like, and who are they at the place? I mean, like what roles do they have? I mean, again, it just, it, again, Netflix can afford to replace all of them, you know, and, and frankly, I'd be very tempted to fire all of them, but, um, but I, it's sort of like, have you followed this, this David Shore stuff, popularism? Have you read like the Ezra Klein thing or the Politico piece? Yeah, I, I read the Ezra Klein piece on him and it is kind of interesting how he, uh, you know, he was kind of canceled and now, uh, resurrected. It's better than before in a, in a weird way. Yeah, but also like so his this is so the reason why I bring this up is on the the dispatch podcast we were talking about this David Shore stuff and it dawned on me about halfway into the conversation that what we were saying what Shore was saying about the Democratic Party applies to like Netflix you know it's this a bunch of young very woke ideological people have intimidated their elders and their man, their bosses into positions that aren't good for the business model, right? And so for the Democratic Party, the business model is get more people to vote Democratic. And Shore's whole argument is, you know, the Democrats should talk about things that are popular with voters and not talk about things that are unpopular with voters. And that is a better way to do politics than talking about things that make voters want to vote for the other party. Wow, and radical. this is considered to be like this incredibly controversial idea of like, you know, of like what a novel approach to politics. And, um, and it seems to me like, like this is what parties used to just understand was their job. And that it's so much of that has changed. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the New York Times and how the New York Times seems to have, instead of an editorial board, the uh, the Twitter mob. And if the Twitter mob is complaining about something they're doing, then, then, then they change direction. And um, it's, it's just not a way to run a railroad. And it also reminds me something I heard Barry Weiss say on, on her podcast, where she talked about how people are so enthrall of the New York Times and Harvard and these institutions. And what you need to realize is that if these institutions are subject to the whims of the Twitter mob. They are not the institutions that we once revered. And it kind mm -hmm. of takes away their, their power in a way. I wish that were, I mean, I, 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 I agree with that conceptually. I wish that were more true as a brand. Um, you know, but you know, Buckley wrote God and man in Yale, what 51, something like that. And, um, and he was making the argument that Yale was no longer the Yale it used to be and blah, 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 blah. 
And I think he was exactly, it was entirely right about his indictment about Yale. And yet I wouldn't say that Yale's brand has suffered. And I think this is, this is one of the problems that conservatives get into where they talk about how we need to have alternative institutions. And the problem is, is that most people who want to send their kid to Harvard don't want to send their kid to Harvard for the grandiose ideals that we think are enshrined in that institution. They want to send them there for the, the network effects and the marketing effects and the brand effects. And you can still get most of that value out of Harvard, even if Harvard has gone in a craptacular direction. You can, but I'm not, I'm not sure it is that way forever. Uh, and if the word gets out that um, the only people who are there are people who are going to be successful in a certain narrow woke world uh, and they can't get jobs in other areas. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. I have a friend who was at a Fortune 50 company who said that they had a policy of not hiring from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera, because they came out and they were entitled and they didn't want to work hard and they had all these ridiculous political ideas that they wanted to impose on the company. And he said that what they do is they hire from big Midwestern state schools mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they just get better candidates from there. And if that happens more broadly, then, then you're going to see changes. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. I'm not saying that Harvard is going to go down in the Wall Street Journal rankings next year. But what's it going to be in 2030 or 2040? I don't know. Um, all right, since you're determined to be an optimist. Um, my training. What is, so uh, this is slightly switching gears, but my hope is, is that we can figure out, so like, I'm very much rooting for, for David Shore. I just wrote this G file about it. I, you know, Shore is a, so, is a socialist. He wants the Democratic Party to do socialist things, but he thinks that the way you get the Democratic Party to do socialist things is by getting people elected. And I would argue that if you get elected by talking about the popular things that you're going to do, it's going to be more difficult for you to do unpopular things and stay elected. And so a Democratic Party that was more committed to popular things would move it rightward. A Democratic Party that was more sane would be a better competition for the Republican Party because right now the Democratic Party provides more than enough nonsense for the Republican Party to say we can't go, you know, they want to defund the police. If the Democratic Party just stopped talking about defunding the police, that would be better for America because it would get incentivize the Republicans to be saner too. And defunding the police is an astoundingly stupid idea. Dangerous, radical, dumb, ahistorical nonsense. So, um, and it occurred to me that if in fact the Democratic Party started behaving more like the Clinton Party, you know, of the 1990s, that would be a kind of devastating blow to the left. Um, and I'm wondering, like, the collapse of the Israeli left is one of the most remarkable stories of the last 30 years. And I don't know enough about it. I mean, I know the broad brushstrokes. But is there any conceivable way about how the you could have an, an analogous development in the United States that that tracks the same thing, or is is Israel's situation sui generis and it's not possible to sort of like learn any of those lessons? I would say Israel is different because of the existential nature of the threat. Right, the left's promises kept leading to people getting blown up by suicide bombers, and you're thank God not having that in the United States of America. That does if sober we were, up your politics pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and, it, and it sobers up your thinking and, and right. just makes you much more hard-headed. 
which is, I think, why the left collapsed. They, they kept making promises, and, and those promises were, were failing in bloody and destructive ways. So I don't see that happening so easily in the U.S., but I think you're right that if the Democratic Party acted in this more rational kind of second uh, term or, or post-Republican Revolution Clinton way from the 1990s, right after Clinton triangulated or moved more to the center, I think that would be devastating to the left. I also think it would be devastating to the current conception of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think there's room for both parties to find a, I don't want to say rational center, because I, I, I don't think you should give up on the policies that work, but some of the um, the play acting, if you will, mm-hmm. or some of the performance art of politics on, on both sides of the aisle, I, I don't think is helpful and I don't think wins over voters. Yeah, I, I, that's sort of my point, is that it would be a virtuous cycle. If if the Democratic Party became more sane, it would be it would negate huge parts of the Republican playbook, which are basically all, look how terrible they are, look what they want to do. Um, and the same thing would work reverse if the Republican Party became more sane. I mean, this is like a refrain with me and Pod is like all either party has to do is not be crazy and they could be the majority party and they are determined not to. And a lot of my liberal friends say that's outrageous. You know, look, they're Trump stealing elections, democracy, insurrection, yada, yada, yada. I think my record is clear of criticizing that stuff. But I, I really think the a lot of decent and smart liberals do not appreciate how incredibly stupid, I mean, like, can be seen with the naked eye from space, stupid. The idea of like getting rid of the concept of mother is, you know, for like practical politics. You want to win over black and Hispanic voters. You want to win over rural voters. You want to, you know, win over immigrant voters. And you're going to tell them that they can no longer refer to their mothers as mothers and they they can't say women get pregnant. They have to talk about people who get pregnant and in these kinds of things, it doesn't matter what your public policy programs are. Those kinds of signals are just like, I can't be, you know, tell people I can't be part of this stuff. And one of the fascinating things in the shore work is like merely talking about some issues, moved voters to the Republicans. Um, my favorite is like the ads that the more the young woke staff that work with shore liked in an ad, the more likely that ad would move, um, actual Democrat and independent voters to vote for Republicans, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is very much like the Netflix thing. Like Dave Chappelle brings millions of viewers and subscribers, customers to Netflix, woke intersectional controversies don't. And yet, um, you know, like the, like just do your job, stay in your lane and like try to get people to vote for your party by saying things that they like to hear and promising to do things that they want you to do. This shouldn't be like some out of the blue bizarre theory. And yet that's sort of where we are. And the same thing goes with the right. The right is convinced, you know, like Saurabh and that crowd, they're convinced that they can hitch their ride to this populist libertarian wave so that they can impose post-liberal theological, you know, social solidarity on the country. It's, it's these tiny committed minorities of intellectuals and, and ideologues who want to use these parties as giant Trojan horses for a unpopular agenda. And I just don't understand where the incentive structure has gone to allow normal 
political hacks to say, you guys are all high. Let's just do our jobs. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know if you can count on the political hacks because <laughs> I think they, uh, they're, uh, they're not exactly ideological. I mean, they, you know, they, they work for the, the highest bidder, as it were. And um, so I, I'm not sure they're the right people, but I think you're fundamentally right about this thing with, let's say, mother, for example. But the getting rid of mothers is a symbolic issue. It's, it's ridiculously stupid, as, as you say. But I, I think getting back to your earlier question about Israel, I think we could see a massive shift if and when the Democrats engage in dumb policies that have practical effects on people, mm-hmm. like the decarceration stuff, for example, where I don't know if you saw Jason Riley's piece in, in the journal yesterday about the, the the Walgreens moving out of San Francisco and yeah. the fact that they basically allow shoplifting in San Francisco means that stores are closing in San Francisco so people can't get basic goods that they need. And that has a real impact. And you know, it's not just anecdotal the stories of people moving out of San Francisco, the tax base moving out of San Francisco, because they're saying it, it's not a good place to live anymore. And I know a lot of people who just said it's it's unlivable, it's not working for me, and they've gone to Florida or Texas. And I think that kind of stuff can have more of a long-term hardening impact in terms of changing the paradigm of politics than, let's say, the mother stuff, which I think could be more of a fad and then doesn't doesn't really have practical real world effects to the extent that the encouraging of shoplifting does yeah no i I agree with you entirely it's it's symbolic right it's just it's indicative of where their heads are at that they want to have these fights it's much like you know defund the police you know which has been my obsession for a while police did not in america did not begin as slave patrols um and there was so little pushback on that from the mainstream media for months that you know and like, even if it, there were some slave patrollers that became cops, that's true in a couple states. It's absolutely true. But it's sort of like this thing about like, you know, intellectual rigor and discourse are ideals that come from a time when white people dominated, you know, uh, society. Okay, even if it were true that police, in some lar- in some significant degree, which is not true to a significant degree are derivative of, of slave patrollers. That's still not an argument for getting rid of police, right? That's still not an argument for getting rid of people who catch murderers and stop rapes and they like, and, and respond to emergencies. And, um, the, you know, the, in the, the democratic party moved quite a bit way, you know, moved very embrace the defund the abolish the police stuff for a while in the sense that at the very least they didn't, they didn't really denounce it, um, for a long while. And, uh, that had consequences. And I, but, but at this point it's like, oh, I think only Milwaukee is actually trying to implement a, a defund the police thing. But, you know, you could look back at like the 1970s, 1960s and say, you know, that's what midwife Ronald Reagan and, you know, and Rudy Giuliani before the fall. um, I'm just not sure this country could handle the kinds of shocks that you're talking about, like runaway inflation and, um, you know, a massive crime spike without much worse political consequences before things got better. Well, we we had that in the 70s. I mean, you and I remember it, that uh, crime was out of control in New York. You couldn't go to a party in New York or a dinner event or anything without talking about crime. Even our favorite show, The Odd Couple, 
uh, it's amazing how many crime episodes there were in, yeah. in that show. And we also had runaway inflation and it, and it was terrible. And in the end, the American people elected Ronald Reagan and we did move to the right in New York. Uh, hired mayors who were willing to be tough on crime, whether they were Democrats or Republicans or, or independents. And, and we've seen, we saw massive improvements. Uh, I think maybe one of the lessons of American politics is you have to relearn the lessons of the past because in the absence of these problems, people forget what caused them. Yeah, but my, I, I agree with that. My only point is, is that our institutions, as bizarre as this may sound, and our media landscape were a lot healthier in the sixties and seventies than they are today. And my point is I'm not sure that they could weather the kind of dislocations that we would have to learn from without, you know, you have, you have lots of dumb people in positions of influence talking about the need for potentially a civil war and secession in this country. You know, you have polls saying that that may be inevitable from large swaths of Republicans and Democrats. I'm not aware of the polling, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies, but I, I, my sense is it wasn't saying that. Well, it's more convenient today to say that because you had, you know, this is before uh, what David Brooks talked about with the great sword and everybody living in neighborhoods with people who are like them. And so uh, the red states and blue states in some ways are more delineated today than they, they were. So uh, if you wanted to have secession, there would be clearer lines now than there were. So that that's one reason why you hear more about it today. But I, I don't think that the politics of today or or the social fabric today is that much worse than in the 1960s when you had urban riots in every summer yeah. of Lyndon Johnson's presidency. So I think no, you had it like for 18 months, there was like a bombing a day and somewhere in the United States. I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. It, it was bad. Um, and, and I'm not saying everything's great today. I just think you have to look at it in longer timeframes. I was at a party at the French embassy this week and surrounded by uh, cheese eating surrender, surrender monkeys plus journalists. Uh, they're both the same. And uh, I was talking to these two level-headed people, both of whom you know, uh, who were saying they're just fundamentally pessimistic about everything. Uh, they think things are just affirmatively getting worse. And I said, well, if you look at the last five years, things are worse. If you look at the last hundred years, things are better. It depends on the time frame you want to look at it. And there's no doubt we're going through a trough right now. There's no doubt it's a difficult period. But I think back to the 1990s. I mean, you know, when you were in that Mintwood apartment and everybody was talking about impeachment in the Republican Congress and it seemed like everything was out of control. And now people look back at the 90s and say, hey, that was a pretty good period. We had peace and prosperity. So uh, I think it's a combination of longer time frames and also not necessarily fully understanding the moment when you're in. Um, all right. So let's switch gears from the time we got left since you know, you used to be a high ranking muckety muck at, at HHS and you wrote a book about disaster preparedness and all that. Um, um, lay out how you see the next six months to a year of the pandemic going like, um, you, it, it really does feel like there are some people who just have acclimatized to pandemic life and We'll never fully let go of masks and 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 the various social control things. And then there are other people who won't get let go of their anger about masks and the social control things. Um, are we getting out of this soon? Eric, can we just stop talking about COVID at some point? I mean, when when what's your since you're the flying the flag of Wattenbergian optimism here? What do you think the next six months to a year looks like? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked because it is something I've been thinking about. And I'm actually trying to write something uh, on this issue that I'll share with you down, down the road. But we had a plan for how to deal with dangerous pathogens that come to our shores. And it was a plan that feared a discrete problem for a discrete time period. And we never really anticipated an ongoing pandemic that was everywhere and just continued over and over again for for these types of long periods of time. So I think that everything that's happened since the horse was initially out of the barn and we failed to stop COVID from spreading as it did across the country, uh, everything that's happened since then has basically been repairing the jet engine while the plane is flying at 500 miles an hour. And I don't think we've come up with an appropriate plan for how to handle this going forward now that it appears to be a somewhat long haul. When I say long haul, I'm not talking until 2030, but I I don't see this fundamentally changing the rest of 2021 uh, or in early 2022. I do think uh, we're getting there on the vaccines. I mean, we do have a high uh, vaccination rate with a lot of hiccups along the way, but also a lot of the breakthrough infections have been among, you know, by definition, among vaccinated people. Now, again, those are not leading to massive deaths. They're certainly not leading to... um, uh, massive hospitalizations. I mean, the symptoms appear to be lessened if you are vaccinated, but that doesn't mean you can't get the disease if mm-hmm. if you're vaccinated. And and I think that has affected the way public health people are thinking about it. So I'm trying to take it in again discrete periods uh, where we are now. I think we're much better off now than we were a year ago. I mean, you and I saw each other recently in person, which is something we could have done a year ago. So things are getting better slowly. But I think this whole uh, COVID obsession where some people are just not prepared ever to go back into the real world is going to be a recurring problem for longer than it should. And I think that um, our public health planners need to try to figure out how to handle something like this instead of right now, again, they're trying to fix it on the fly. Uh, I I think we need to put some more long-term thinking about what happens if the disease comes to our shores and we just can't get rid of it and we don't have a vaccine. And all we have are NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is what the situation was for the first 10 months. Mm-hmm. How do we handle something like that? And I don't think we put enough thinking into that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad this hasn't been the case, but like, um, I always come back to this about what if this had been more like the Spanish flu and it disproportionately killed young and healthy people how crazy would our politics be then? You know, I mean, I I don't think it's like a good feature that it tends to kill people with a lot of comorbidities who are older and all that kind of stuff. It's still terrible. Um, But if, if people's children were the primary threat, I mean, I could just see the society, you know, having a very different and more intense reaction to all of this and much less patience for nonsense whether it was under Trump or under Biden or f- from, you know, people wearing their politics on their mask or not mask wearing, you know, it would have been, we should count our blessings that uh, didn't happen. And there's no reason to think that it can't happen in the future. Or, or what if this had happened in the pre-internet age when there was no Zoom or in the pre-vaccine revolution age where you couldn't have developed a vaccine in under a year? I mean, there are Obviously, this is a terrible tragedy. 700,000 plus Americans have died. It's, it's still ongoing. But we, in many ways, are better off that it happened today in the way it sure. happened than if it had happened in the 1970s when we were growing up. Um, 
So I asked Scott Gottlieb about this and I didn't get a, I didn't get, I can't remember exactly what the answer was, but I remember sort of covering too much and therefore not enough uh, specificity. I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that the excess deaths in the United States are greater, significantly greater. I haven't looked recently what the numbers are, but they're significantly greater than the COVID deaths. Um, you know, and you hear this mantra on a lot, from a lot of people on the right saying they're padding the COVID death numbers with all of these, you know, some like Colin Powell, right? Colin Powell was 84 and he had cancer. So he would have died of, if he got the flu, he would have died from it. Probably, you know, I, I'm not trying to be glib. I'm just saying if you're 84 and have blood cancer, lots of things can be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back that can kill you. And, but it goes down as a COVID death for, you know, all the obvious reasons. And there are a lot of people on the right who say, you know, that's padding the number and the real number is much lower. I'm not going to get into that game. And I always point out, okay, that, that may be true, uh, in some discrete circumstances, but the total number of statistically anomalous excess deaths is well above the COVID number death. And, um, I'm curious, do you have an explanation for it or a theory about why that's the case and, and what, what we should attribute it to? Yeah, it's actually challenging even more so because you'd think that there are certain things, types of deaths that would have gone down, such as, for example, uh, car accidents of people right. locked up in their homes, or um, you would have thought murders, but obviously murders uh, went up in part because of the, some of the issues we were talking about earlier. Although it's interesting, the murders, my understanding is that the murders of sort of stranger on stranger crime murders have not really significantly, I mean, they've gone up, but the the... It's more among people who know, you know, it's like domestic abuse, people who right, know people each other. People in their kind own of homes and sick of each other. Yeah. Uh, but so there are some things you think might have gone down, um, and, and they probably did car accidents, I bet, went down. Uh, but you you probably had an uptick in suicides. You probably had an uptick in, in, in overdoses. Um, and, you know, there, there are some people who die because they gave up. Mm-hmm. In, in this very difficult circumstance and it's not counted as a suicide it's not counted as a covid death but if you really see no prospect for going forward it's, it's a very challenging thing to deal with so I, I i do think when you have a massive disruption in society you have potential for for the development of, of excess deaths over what would be expected yeah and also i mean one of the other ones um one of the other theories is and they're all partial theories right because it's probably a bunch of different reasons but like um, during the shutdowns, people stopped seeking, stopped going to their doctor, right? They stopped seeking medical treatment. So some things weren't caught early enough to fix and then became, you know, uh, a fatal condition that could have been, you know, uh, anticipated, could have been dealt with if they had caught it earlier. Um, I'm sure that's some of it, but anyway, I think it's sort of a interesting thing. All right. Last, last, uh, thing. Um, I'm sure you disagree. It's fine. Every, some of my best friends disagree with my third party trial balloon thing. That's not what I want to kind of get into. Um, although you're free to opine on it. Um, uh, I've been thinking about this and you're, you know, you're one of this handful of people, Continetti, uh, Jonathan Adler, um, a few others who are, nerdy about the history of neoconservatism and 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 all of this stuff and along with me um um i'm trying to think of you know because the bill crystal argument is was that and 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 others advance this as well is that 
disaffected Republicans should join join a popular front of sorts with the Democratic Party, form a coalitional wing within the Democratic Party of sort of the old Republican disaffected guard and help to influence the party rightward. Um, I would argue, I have argued that that won't work and hasn't worked. And the evidence for that is how Biden has in fact governed and Democrats have in fact governed over the last two years. They have, Biden has not shown much interest in winning over that slice of the electorate. And for many of the David Shore kind of reasons, I think, but, um, but it occurred to me, you know, that was the argument for a lot of disaffected Democrats to join the Republican party. And they were eventually, a lot of them were eventually called, um, neoconservatives. And what, anyway, the point I want to ask you about is like, the thing is, is like virtually all of them that I can think of with a handful of intellectuals who are never really involved in actual politics, like Nat Glazer and Daniel Bell, pretty much all of them became full spectrum conservatives over time. And there's something about switching parties that causes your ideological commitments to change as well. I mean, um, you know, Ben stayed pro-choice, you know, but, you know, uh, but otherwise he was a pretty much a full spectrum conservative, except for a few, you know, discrete issues. Um, Bill Bennett, Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Charles Krauthammer, you can go down a very long list. They just became, you know, conservatives. Um, am I missing somebody or something? I mean, like, were there people who actually truly bucked that trend and joined the opposite coalition for strategic reasons, but didn't actually over time change their ideological commitments? Well, first of all, I think one exception to what you're talking about is uh, Pat Moynihan, who was part of mm. that neoconservative Fair. crowd. And, um, you know, the joke about him was always that, uh, he would say neoconservative things, but he would vote in, in liberal ways to keep his seat in New York. But I, I think it's interesting that you do have this phenomenon of the neoconservatives who were Democrats moving right and becoming full on Republicans and being welcomed in the Republican party coalition with, you know, with, with some disagreements, you know, Pat Buchanan didn't always love them, but, uh, but for the most part, they, they were accepted and, and one measure of acceptance is they would get serious positions in Republican administrations. And I don't think you see that going the other way. I don't think you see Republicans who go and endorse, uh, endorse Democrats getting that kind of support and uh, embrace from the other party. And, uh, you know, you and I remember uh, in 1992, we had some friends who were neocons at AEI who went and endorsed Clinton. And when mm -hmm. it came down to it, they got shut out for appointments. Uh, the Coalition for a Democratic Majority uh, were these neocons in 76 who backed Carter. And not only did they get shut out ideologically in terms of the, uh, the Carter administration went in a direction that they, they found important, uh, but Elliot Abrams had that famous line about how they could barely get an appointment. They got one person who was uh, given the job of the envoy to Micronesia, and Elliot joked that not even Macronesia, but Micronesia. I always thought so, that was a Moynihan joke. Not, not, was it Elliot Abrams? I believe it was Elliot Abrams. All right, all right cool. All right. So, the, so I actually looked into this for uh, something I was thinking about writing as usual, um, and about this question of whether the Democrats have embraced Republicans who moved their way. Um, and other than, um, let's say, Ron, Tr Ron Klain uh, retweeting uh, uh, Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot, um, and I think that's kind of a special circumstance that's not uh, necessarily co comparable, I, I don't think you've really seen that. In fact, I talked to some people who were, wanted to be Republicans for Biden, and which is, you know, that, that's fine if that's what you want to do, but 
who thought that they might get jobs in this new administration. And mm-hmm. I told them, if you look at the history, and I did look at this history, it was unlikely that they would end up with positions in the new administration, suggesting that they won't get embraced in the same way that the Republicans did embrace the neoconservatives. Yeah, although I'd be, you know, I'd be curious if the Republican Party would be accommodating to Democrats who flipped um, and became Republicans in that way, in the way they were back then. I mean, back then, Cold War helped a lot of that, right? I mean, because a big chunk of it was, not all of it, um, but a big chunk of it was driven by the sort of anti-war stuff of Vietnam and the Cold War stuff in general. And if you were right on that kind of thing, you, a lot of your other positions could get overlooked in Republican circles in much the same way. There were some liberals who like became strong anti, you know, strong war on terror hawks in the Bush administration. And they were sort of welcomed culturally with open arms. I, but I, I, it's hard to think of like, I mean, Joe Manchin would be welcome in the Republican party because a, because of his vote and getting the Republicans to have the majority and B, because he has a lot of maneuvering room given how red his state is. And so he could be, you know, he could be a Republican Moynihan in a sense, but um, it's hard to think of a, of how a, a bunch of former Democrats could join the Republican Party today and, have, as, and be as well accommodated as those guys were 25, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean that that's that's my initial point, but on your point about whether Republicans would welcome ex-Democrats today, uh A it may be harder and B one reason could be Twitter and Google. Yeah. Right? These people would would come in and they say, "Oh, I'm on board with your position or I find the Biden excesses problematic, uh, so I want to be on board." And then you could find every statement they made from in 2007 until today that just not, did not agree with the re- Republican approach. And I think that could be a problem with them in seeking appointments in a Republican administration down the road. Um, so just in terms of rank punditry, then do you think, because you're, you know, a historian of the presidency and you follow this kind of stuff. Um, it feels like the wheels are coming off the bus of the, in the Biden administration in ways that, um, very different than the Trump administration because that was the chaos of the Trump administration was kind of a feature, not a bug. Um, this feels like they have a deliberate, serious bunch of professionals and processes in place, and they're all failing. <laughs> and um, they're trying to be a normal presidency, and they're just—it feels like they're not up to the job or they're not up to the realities of the situation. Um, do you? Do you think that's right? And like, do you think that there's, um, I mean, what's the presidency that you think is the best historical analog to it? I mean, is it, is it still Jimmy Carter or is there a better one? Well, I, I think that the two things to look at are Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. Uh, Jimmy Carter was kind of disaster after disaster and never got on the right footing after a terrible opening. Uh, Bill Clinton had a terrible opening and then kind of, you know, <laughs> think right in the ship a little bit, although he did have the huge impeachment problem in, in the second half. Uh, no, but he got term. elected. But remember, he got reelected right, pretty handily. I mean, because he right, and the ship. he left with high approval ratings yeah. over sixty, which yeah. is unthinkable today. So th- those are the two potential models. Uh, I, I think the press is pretty protective of Biden in a way. So uh, you and I probably hear more about 
inflation and the ports problems and the economic issues uh, and, you know, Biden's just general looking lost whenever he's in front of a microphone or any other sentient human being, uh, then I think people who just read the New York Times and Washington Post do. So I think if they pass these these two bills, which you know I'm not rooting for, but if they pass them, I think the narrative on Biden could be, oh, he had some bumpy start, but look, you know, he reshaped the economy and made us spend all these trillions of dollars. So it's possible that the media narrative on him could be more positive than we're seeing right now. But it, it also, uh, a, I don't think it's good right now, and B, I think that uh, the Jimmy Carter scenario is also quite possible. Yeah, I mean, if you're right that the average voter, um is being protected from the worst aspects of the Biden administration, that makes his polls <laughs> look, you know, even more terrifying, right? I mean, like... Well, I'll give you one example. I mean, Afghanistan, he got bad press for a couple of weeks, no doubt. Uh, but I haven't read a bad story about Afghanistan and him in the last couple of weeks. Or Yeah, and there's still Americans stuck there, you know? I mean, yeah. Um, no, I have a theory about the Afghanistan thing, though. I'm curious your thoughts about this. So, like... A lot of Republicans, a lot of Fox News guys want to focus on how bad his numbers are about dealing with immigration and the border and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. But like, to me, it's a little bit uh, analogous to Obamacare's bad poll numbers early on, you know, when they were trying to get it passed. And, you know, liberals like Jonathan Chait would say, well, that's because a lot of left wingers don't think Obamacare goes far enough, right? It, uh, it doesn't do Medicare for all or whatever. So it's getting, there's a part of the Democratic base that doesn't like it. And there was a big chunk of the Republican base that doesn't like it. And that's why its poll numbers are bad. And um, I think that's probably true of immigration as well. And that there are probably people who are on the, or are criticizing Biden's, don't like Biden's immigration stuff from the left. But Afghanistan, there's no like, you know, left-wing critique of how biden handled it right it's 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 not like oh man biden really should have screwed that up worse right <laughs> you know um and so it's a, just a flat negative appraisal and to me the the takeaway from this is that a lot of people misread polls people thought that because there was wide popular support for getting out of afghanistan that meant there was deep popular support for getting out of Afghanistan. And when you, if, but if you had explained to people the potential costs of getting out or said that this kind of thing was a risk or that we would be known around the world for having lost the war, support would have plummeted. And so a lot of people misread this as like, like, yeah, actually the average person should get out of Afghanistan. And the average person is like, yeah, sure. Of course we should get out of Afghanistan. Why not? But this is not what they had in mind this spectacular screw up. And it turns out that a lot of Americans just don't like the idea of losing wars or being humiliated. And, um, uh, and I think that's a good, if, if that lesson is learned, that's a good lesson for America to learn. It's just crazy too high a price. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think the wide, but not deep point is, is a, is a smart one. Um, I also just uh, want to add one point about the, uh, the Clinton-Biden uh, comparison, which is Bill Clinton uh, in his 40s was just a much more capable and talented mm -hmm. politician than Joe Biden is at any age, but also especially in his late 70s. So I think Clinton had that going for him in a way that Biden does not. Yeah, I also think that Biden is really intimidated by young people. And there's, there's talk about how 
he calls his grandkids for like a gut check about what's right and what's wrong and what's like popular with the with the youngins and that strikes me as just an absolutely terrible idea i mean like sounds like J- jimmy carter with amy carter and asking her about the nuclear weapons <laughs> exactly yeah i mean it's 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 very david shore right and and i think that like he and the people he relies on are surrounded by this moat of young ideological people you know josh josh Krauschauer, i was talking about this the other day josh Krauschauer tells me that he knows um um staffers and activists in the administration who you explain to them they're making a bad political decision um and they say i don't care because this is you know this is the right thing to do even if it will cost us you know polls and support and all that kind of thing and i get that if you're talking about like the civil rights act but not everything is the civil rights act and i think that's part of the problem is that we've raised a whole generation of young people particularly the ones who go into politics on the left who think every issue is this twilight struggle between good and evil between the forces of white supremacy and the forces of justice and diversity and that's what they think politics is and that's just not what politics is is Krauschauer saying that journalists are telling Biden staffers you're making politically dumb moves and the response to journalists is we don't care? Because it would be weird that journalists are kind of trying to give that political advice to. No, I, 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 I'm giving a shorthand. My sense of it is, is like, you know, they'll say stuff like, or like Krauschauer will say stuff like, you know, so-and-so says that this is going to cost you, you know, two seats in Mississippi. Or this is going to cost, not me, not Mississippi, you know, two seats in Illinois, or this is going to like, you know, you're going to take a beating on this, um, in the midterms kind of thing. What do you say about that? And the answer is, and this is not, this is not on the record. This is like polite conversation among friends kind of stuff. And the answer is they don't care because they're like ideologically committed to a sort of woke conception of how politics is done. And I, and, and, and I think there's a analog of that on the right these days, but it's just so much more powerful on the left. It kind of reminds me of that uh, ridiculous Jim DeMint comment where he said he'd rather have 30 committed conservatives in the U.S. Senate rather than a 60-vote majority if it included some Northeastern Republicans. Right, which is just so insane, right? You know, and it just, and that's, it's, it's, that's right. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm getting at is like, politics is about moving the ball down the field. It's not about, you know, dying in your own end zone on principle. Um, but that's sort of where we are. All right, my friend, I'm sorry. I know I kind of filibustered on this one. It's because I'm wildly caffeinated and under, under rested. Um, but it was great to have you on. Um, uh, I know you're always working on a book. Is there a book that you're working on that you can talk about or mention? Or what was the last book that you want to plug or anything like that? Well, I mean, you've mentioned that I, I'm good at mentioning Fight House, which is uh, still yes. out there. Um, but um, then as for the next book, uh, stay tuned. Okay, fair enough. Tevi Troy, uh, uh, a polymath and a dear friend and man who's done many, many things. Um, We'll put a bunch of your stuff up in the show notes. Um, Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, As I just said to Tevi, I apologize for kind of uh, monologuing too much on this one. I um, don't know where my head is at. um, it's just it's nature of the beast sometimes. Um, but it's always great to have Tevi on. Got some exciting shows next week. 
and um, uh, check out whatever comes of that latest episode of Glop. Uh, I, I, I honestly don't know how they're going to edit what they're going to edit it into, but it was um, fun. And um, other than that, uh, please become a you know paid member of the Dispatch community. We've got these sort of gift program things going on. Lots of stuff is happening, and um, um, you know we're 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 cooking with gas. So with that, thanks again to Tevi Troy. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Just need you to say no, you won't. There's a podcast. If you could do it in Yiddish, that would be awesome. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Nine does this podcast? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.